Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, it's part three of our series about the great political fictions. And today, it's a play, Mary Stuart by Friedrich Schiller, which is the story not of one, but of two queens, and the impossible choices that they faced in a world of men. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and you can subscribe for a special rate if you just go to LRB dot me slash ppf subscribe to the london review of books at lrb dot me slash ppf the experience of war or of fighting in a war is sometimes described as long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of absolute terror You could say that the experience of politics, at least sometimes, is long periods of bureaucracy punctuated by moments of impossible decisions. Most of the time, politics is about asking the question, what is allowed? What is permitted? What do the rules say? What's in the framework? What's the context? What can we do in that sense? But occasionally, there is no rule book. There is no framework. Something is required for which there is no bureaucratic justification. Or, perhaps more often, the rules point in different directions. This framework says you should do this, but this framework says you should do that. And then there is no overarching framework that reconciles the two. The impossible decision is to know that whatever you do, you're going to be breaking someone's rules. And it might be thought in the world of politics, if you have a kind of supreme power, maybe that doesn't matter so much because you make your own rules. You're above all of that. But even the people with supreme power aren't free just to do whatever they want, regardless of the rules, because whatever they do, it creates a new framework. It creates a new set of expectations, expectations that will bind them too. Because whatever you do, now you're the person who did that. And that's what people expect. But the impossible decision comes at the moment where there is nothing to tell you what to do and when there is a good chance that whatever you do, you're going to end up worse off outside of the framework within which you felt comfortable. Friedrich Schiller's play Mary Stuart, Maria Stuart in German, doesn't really describe a world of bureaucracy. That's the wrong term for it. It was written... It was first performed in 1800 in Germany, but it describes a world from 200 plus years earlier, the world of late 16th century English and Scottish politics and European politics, a world of kings and queens and courts and hierarchies, but also of mysticism, of deeply personal power. It's not a bureaucratic world, but it is a rule-bound world. It is a hidebound world. It is a world in which there are absolutely clear expectations of what can be done, including for the most powerful people, including for supreme monarchs, including for popes, for all of them. Everyone lives in a world where there are some rules. This play is about the moment of impossible decision for maybe one person, maybe two people in that world, both of whom are queens, neither of whom can find a way to resolve the terrible dilemma 
in which they find themselves. The two queens are Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I of England, and Mary Stuart, better known usually in the English-speaking world as Mary, Queen of Scots. And it is about not quite a moment, but a short period of time that comes after a long period of indecision. It is the moment of impossible choice following the long period of trying to work out what is permitted, what is allowed, what can be done, what can be got away with without completely upending the established order of what is permitted and what is allowed, even for queens. The long period is the period in which Mary, Queen of Scots, has been in England. She's in England because she has been driven out of Scotland. She's effectively been deposed as Queen of Scotland and replaced on the throne by her infant son, her baby son, James. And she comes to England looking for a kind of protection from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth gives her protection in the sense that she takes her in and she houses her and she puts her up in a series of palaces and castles, almost as though she were a kind of guest, but she's not a guest because she's also a prisoner, because the one thing that Elizabeth can't do is treat Mary like a guest, because a guest has certain expectations attached to that position, not just hospitality, but a kind of freedom, including the freedom to leave. And Elizabeth can't possibly let Mary leave. In the end, by the time we get to this point in the play in 1587, she is not just not free to leave, she is a prisoner. She is being held against her will quite clearly, explicitly, against her will. So she's not quite a guest. She's a prisoner. She's also clearly a threat. And that's the reason why she's a prisoner. She's never free to leave because Mary, Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, is the symbol of resistance to Elizabeth's rule, to the Elizabethan settlement and the Anglican settlement because Mary is the Catholic alternative. And the Catholic forces of Europe would very much like to replace Elizabeth as Queen of England, with Mary, Queen of Scots. So she can't be treated as a guest. She is subject to something like the rules of hospitality, and at the same time, she is clearly a prisoner. A lot of people think she's worse than a prisoner. She's a traitor. She's obviously a traitor. She has designs on Elizabeth's throne. You treat a guest with hospitality and kindness. You treat a prisoner according to the rules. You treat a traitor by killing them. Traitors get executed and there is a clamour, and there has been a clamour for a long time, for Elizabeth to kill Mary. But she can't kill her, not least because she's still, at some level, ostensibly, her protector. She certainly can't just straightforwardly have her assassinated and let the world know it. She could do it in practical terms, in the purest terms of real politique, Mary is completely at her mercy. And all Elizabeth would have to do is click her fingers. And there would be many people who would slit her throat for her. But if she does that, she knows she would destroy her own reputation. She would have murdered a woman whom she was protecting. At the same time, she's not protecting her because she's a threat. So it seems like maybe the obvious solution is the bureaucratic solution. What Elizabeth needs to do is to put Mary on trial, and she needs to follow a process, a due process of law, which will result in a guilty verdict, and that will allow her then, officially, to sanction her death. 
And that's what's happened before this play starts. Mary is under sentence of death. She has been tried in a court that has been created by Elizabeth's leading politicians, particularly her real politique spymaster, a man called Burley. And before a court of peers of the realm, of, of noblemen, Mary is accused of taking part in conspiracies against Elizabeth and, and plotting her overthrow, and she is found guilty and she's condemned to death. And so that seems like this is the solution. In a way, Elizabeth doesn't have to make the decision. The decision is made for her by a court of law. But there are two problems here. One problem is that Elizabeth still has to sign the death warrant. In the end, it's still going to be Elizabeth's decision to put Mary to death. And the second problem, which is the one that Mary makes a lot of, which is that from Mary's point of view, this court is illegitimate because there is another rule. Sure, there are the rules about how Elizabethan justice is meted out, which have been designed by the Elizabethans to serve the Elizabethans. And then there is a deeper rule, a more timeless rule of justice, Mary says, which everyone should recognize. You can only be tried by your peers. If you're going to be accused of a crime, it is your peers who will judge you. And that is a tradition of English law. And yes, in one sense, Mary was tried by a court of peers, peers of the realm, but Mary says they are not her peers because she is not herself a peer of the realm. She is a queen. She is a monarch. And therefore, the only person who can try her and judge her is the only other monarch, Elizabeth. As a queen, she can only be judged by a queen. So there is no way, Mary says, for Elizabeth to get off the hook and allow others to take this decision for her. And during the play, certainly the first half of the play, Mary repeatedly insists on this, that the two queens must sort this out face to face, person to person, because they are the only two who are capable of exchanging judgment at a level of equality. At one point early in the play, Mary says of Elizabeth, her host, her captor, and her would-be executioner. To her alone, my sister, a queen, a woman, am I able to speak freely? So this court, which was set up to try her, Mary says, was not a place in which she could speak freely. Men, men who were beneath her, but who were also men, were passing judgment on her, and they pretended that they allowed her a kind of defence, but she was completely tongue-tied. She was unable to speak to them, first because they wouldn't listen, second because they wouldn't understand her, and third because they are beneath her. But she could talk to Elizabeth if she was given the chance freely. The two women could speak. And if they could speak, they could reach an understanding. My sister, a queen, a woman. They are the only two who have enough in common that they could reach an understanding. And Mary's hope is that Elizabeth will understand that she cannot have her killed and that she must ultimately allow her to go free because she too is a queen. She thinks that Elizabeth will see something of herself in Mary. Yet when you look at that sister, queen, woman, it's clear these are three very, very different roles and there's nothing straightforward about any of those relationships. For a start, they aren't sisters. Elizabeth did have a sister called Mary who was a queen. Queen Mary, a Catholic queen, the Catholic Queen of England, who preceded Elizabeth on the throne. This is not that Mary. 
This is Mary, her cousin. This Mary does not share a father with Elizabeth. This Mary is descended from Elizabeth's father's father, Henry Tudor, Henry VII, but this Mary is a Stuart. She is not part of that family. And this Mary is a rival claimant to the throne. And one of the reasons that she's a rival claimant to the throne is though both women are queens, and actually they're not the same kind of queen at all because Queen Elizabeth is Queen of England, Mary, Queen of Scots, is no longer Queen of Scots. She's been replaced on the throne. Mary was also once another queen. She was Queen of France because she was married when very, very young to the King of France before he died. But now she isn't a queen. It's not quite a lie to say we're both queens, but it's pushing the truth. When they meet, they will not meet in any sense as equals. But the thing that Mary knows, part of the secret of what she thinks would be her hold over Elizabeth, is though Elizabeth really is a queen, Elizabeth's mother, in the eyes of many people, not just of Catholics, but of many people, including some of the people of England, was not a queen. She was Anne Boleyn. Henry had her executed, and Henry had her executed because she was, depending on your perspective, a traitor, an adulteress, but she has become a non-person. Elizabeth's claim to the throne is very tenuous. It is long-standing now, but it is still tenuous because she is the daughter of a woman who was not actually, in the eyes of many people, a queen. She is illegitimate, literally illegitimate, and therefore an illegitimate holder of the throne of England. Mary, for all of her many, many weaknesses, has a legitimate line that takes her back to Henry VII. They're queens, but they are completely different kinds of queens. And yes, they are both women, as she says, sister, queen, woman. But as both of them know, they are women in a world of men. And an encounter woman to woman is not some direct exchange in which they can speak their minds because they both know that everything that they say will be judged in the light of what people think women think about women. Elizabeth says at one point, the world believes woman never just towards woman. That is, whatever I decide about Mary, people will think I am deciding it as a woman and therefore I am jealous I am vindictive, I am bitter, I am shrewish. They will caricature me as a woman, and if it's a woman-to-woman encounter, they will caricature the encounter as the sort of thing that women do when they meet each other, unmediated by men. Mary and Elizabeth are both, in this play, complicated characters because they are many, many different things at once. They are not just queens. They are not even the same kinds of queens. They are each more than one kind of queen at the same time. And in many ways, they mirror each other. But in all the ways that they mirror each other, the relationship is profoundly unstable. And it totally depends on the circumstances, the context, the framework in which it's seen. So it looks like, and in a way, it it's obvious that there is a deep power imbalance between them, the prisoner and the woman who is holding her imprisoned, the woman under sentence of death and the woman who can sign her death warrant. Mary, relatively speaking, is powerless. Elizabeth has the whole power of the English state behind her. She has a court. She has an army. She has all sorts of people willing, begging to do her bidding. And when we meet Mary in this play, she doesn't even barely have servants, just a couple. 
She has no access to her religion, Catholicism. She can't see a priest. She can't really get writing materials. All communications are controlled and censored. She is completely trapped. And she's raging in frustration, not just at her lack of liberty, but her absolute lack of power. And yet it's clear right from the beginning that she's not powerless. One of the reasons she's not powerless is she is a magnet for all the people who want to overthrow Elizabeth. They are drawn to her. All sorts of people find their way through the barriers that are put up to keep Mary away from the rest of the world. She draws to her a whole host of forces that are trying to align themselves against the Elizabethan state. That makes her incredibly dangerous to Elizabeth. It makes her a threat to Elizabeth, but she couldn't be a threat if she was powerless. At the same time as being a magnet, she's also a kind of shield for Elizabeth, which is part of her power too, because she is drawing all of the forces that are potentially aligned against Elizabeth towards her own person. And Elizabeth has Mary where she can see her. So because she's a magnet, it allows Elizabeth to see, or at least it allows Elizabeth's spy masters and rail politique operatives to see what these forces are and what they are planning, it is incredibly helpful to have someone who is such an obvious figurehead, a symbol of the resistance, because she's also under lock and key. So the symbol of the resistance is also someone who is being watched, which means the resistance can be watched, which means, weirdly, that Mary has a kind of power over Elizabeth, which is that Elizabeth can't kill her. Because if Elizabeth kills her, if Burley kills her, if the state kills her, they've got rid of one of their most valuable assets, which is the thing that draws the resistance towards her. And so that power, at some level, should keep Mary safe. And it has kept her safe. After all, it's been 18 years. The clamor to put her to death has been there for 18 years, and it's been growing and growing each time. There is revealed a plot, a conspiracy against Elizabeth. The cry goes up kill Mary, and they haven't killed her yet. And if they haven't killed her yet, maybe they never will, because Mary has that power over them. It reminds me this setup of what's sometimes called a paradox. It's a sort of cliched paradox, but it's also a deep puzzle. Appropriately for this story, it's called the paradox of the executioner. And it's the story of a man, and in the paradox, it's usually a man, let's make this one a man, who is under sentence of death, and he is told, you are going to be executed this week, but maybe out of charity, because we don't want you to have one terrible last sleepless night. We're not going to tell you the morning we're going to come and kill you, but one day this week, Monday to Friday, you'll get a knock on the door in the morning and it will be your last day, but we're not going to tell you which day. It is going to be a surprise. And so the man thinks, great, they can't execute me. If they've promised it's going to be a surprise, they can't execute me because... If they come on Friday, it won't be a surprise because that's the last day they could come. So if by Thursday night they haven't knocked on my door, I know it's coming on Friday, so it can't be Friday. But then if it can't be Friday, it can't be Thursday because I know it can't be Friday. So if we get to Thursday, that's the last day it could be, but then it won't be a surprise. So if I get to Wednesday night and they haven't knocked on my door, they can't execute me because it won't be a surprise. But then it can't be Wednesday either, because if it can't be Thursday, then it can't be Wednesday, because that's the last day they could do it. So if it can't be Wednesday, it can't be Tuesday. So if it can't be Tuesday, it can't be Monday. And so if it can't be Monday, they can't execute me. Therefore, I'm safe. 
And yet, of course, if they knock on his door on Tuesday morning, he isn't safe. And it will be a surprise because he doesn't know they will follow that logic. And in the same way, on the one hand, Mary could persuade herself that Elizabeth will never dare kill her because she hasn't done it yet. And on the other hand, Mary knows Elizabeth one day could click her fingers and Mary will be dead. The two characters are also inversions of each other or mirrors of each other in their, you can't really call it their private lives because they're queens, so they don't have private lives, it's all public. And you can't really call it their personal lives because their persons are, in some ways, the state. It's all political, it's all public. But in their lives, in how they have lived, they are mirrors of each other, they are inversions of each other. And Schiller makes a lot of this, but his characters make a lot of it. Elizabeth makes a lot of it. She is the virgin queen. She is unmarried. She is chaste. She is pure. She has never given herself to a man. And that includes the fact that as a woman in a man's world, she has never given a man that power over her. Because even if you're a queen in that world, your husband has power over you. And she is aware that the many suitors who have pursued her have pursued her not because of her beauty, though they will tell her it's her beauty, not probably even because they love her, though they will tell her they love her beyond all riches, but because they want power over the power that she has. And she's never given it up. She's never given any of them what they want. Mary, by contrast, was married three times, once when very young, then twice in Scotland, and all of it is surrounded all of it was surrounded by scandal. She lived a scandalous life. And Elizabeth makes a lot of the contrast between her own dignity, purity, and chastity, and the fact that Mary is a magnet for scandal at least as much as she is a magnet for resistance. The rumours are that Mary had many lovers, that at least one of those lovers was murdered, perhaps with Mary's connivance, perhaps not that her second husband was probably murdered, and that the man who orchestrated that murder then became Mary's third husband. And if even a bit of that is true, it does stand in stark contrast to the life that Elizabeth has led. And Elizabeth also says of her own life, it's not just a chaste life, it is a life of self-denial. She has denied herself the pleasures of the flesh. She has denied herself love and passion and being true to her feelings. Mary has indulged her feelings beyond anything that's respectable in Elizabeth's account. Mary has allowed herself, even though she's a queen, to live a life of passion. And Elizabeth has had none of that. How could they be equals? How could Mary expect that were they to meet, Elizabeth would look at her and just see a sister, a queen, a woman, and not frankly, a slut. And yet, though it looks like, therefore, there's a huge power imbalance there too, it's also clear that Elizabeth is trapped by her purity, by her chastity. She has to live up to her own reputation. At one point, Mary says of her reputation, that is Mary's reputation, I can safely say I am better than repute has me. The worst of her is known and then exaggerated and then exaggerated some more. Elizabeth can never be as good as her reputation. Mary can never be as bad as hers. But Elizabeth also has the problem that her great asset, the thing that she has held on to as her weapon, it's a political weapon, which is the fact that she is unmarried, 
over time gets less and less powerful because having got that far without marrying, would she really marry now? The play has in the background the possibility of another suitor, another French suitor. It's a bit anachronistic, but there's another possibility, finally, that Elizabeth will get married. But there's also a strong feeling that having got this far unmarried, she's never going to commit. Why give it up now? It is her one great weapon. But it also means she'll never have an heir. And therefore, the succession and all of the potential for disaster that surrounds the succession of a, a monarch without issue gets more and more dangerous and acute. And everything that Mary symbolizes, including the possibility of an alternative line of succession, Mary's son, gets more and more dangerous. The thing that she has over Mary is also her weakness. They are two women who are contrasted by religion as well, and that runs throughout the play. Not just Protestant Elizabeth and Catholic Mary, Elizabeth is Anglican. It's not that she is an Anglican. She is Anglicanism. It's her church. She's the head of it. She is the defender of that faith. She is at the heart of and at the head of a religion that is embodied in her. Mary, by contrast, is part of a church that is far greater than her, has many, many different aspects. She may be a figurehead for a certain form of resistance to Elizabethan rule. But Catholicism is much bigger than Mary. Anglicanism isn't really bigger than Elizabeth. It is Elizabeth. Again, one woman, the head of her church, another woman, just a member of her church. But that means that Elizabeth is, relatively speaking, friendless. It's her church but it's just her church. Mary has many friends. There are all sorts of Catholic forces because this is the Catholic church that are working to put Mary on the throne, to get her out of prison, to rescue her in some way, to achieve salvation for her. There is a vast network, a European network, that surrounds, underpins everything that Mary stands for, however powerless she appears. Elizabeth has to do it herself. Every strength is a weakness. Every weakness is a potential strength. But the one thing that these two women have in common in this play is that they are women in a world of men. They may be the only two queens in this play. They are the only two monarchs who appear on stage. Everyone else is beneath them. All the men, all the women, but almost everyone else who appears is a man. But they have to act through men. They need men to do their bidding. Their will can only manifest itself if men take it on, which means they are also trapped by their dependence on men. Even Elizabeth, the woman who refused the dependence of a wife to a husband, is nonetheless, in this portrayal, multiply dependent on the different men who surround her because she needs them to act for her. She wants, it's clear early on in the play, someone to kill Mary. She doesn't know what to do. She is paralyzed. The court case hasn't really worked. She doesn't want to sign the death warrant. She doesn't want to be the killer of Mary, her sister, a queen, a woman. But she wants someone to kill her. She wants the problem to go away. Who will rid me of this queen? She tries to suggest to the man who is holding Mary as a prisoner in his home, in his castle, that he let an assassin through the gate. 
And he says to her, because this is a world of rules and expectations, I wouldn't dream of doing that. You have asked me to perform one task, which is to hold this woman. I won't kill her. What would people think of me if I killed her? She is not just a prisoner. She is a guest in my home. Elizabeth then finds a man who will kill Mary for her. She finds an assassin who happens to be the nephew of the man in whose house, in whose castle Mary is being held, a young firebrand called Mortimer, who comes to see Elizabeth and she says, will you kill her? And Mortimer says, yes, your majesty, I will do anything for you. And so she does find a man who will act in a way that will get her off the hook. But it means she has to put her trust in an assassin. And the trouble with trusting assassins is they are really not to be trusted because they are assassins. And this man is actually playing a double game. He has no intention of killing Mary. His plan is actually to liberate Mary, to free her and to kill Elizabeth because he has secretly converted to Catholicism. And when Elizabeth says to him, slightly suspiciously, I hear rumours that while you've been abroad, you've been hanging out with Catholics. He says, all the better to spy on them for you, Your Majesty. I'm, everything is in your service. Everything I do that looks suspicious is just because I'm playing a double game. He is playing a double game because actually he has converted to Catholicism. He's not to be trusted an inch, and given the chance, he would kill Elizabeth, not Mary. She has to trust people who can't be trusted. She asks people to do untrustworthy things who say to her, but you've entrusted me with this. How could I breach your trust? It drives her mad. Her spy master, Burley, who's the one who can engineer Mary's death. But he's also a politician. And though he's not trustworthy, he is a public man and he won't do anything without Elizabeth's sanction. He's the one who needs her to sign the death warrant because he knows if he does it without her sanction, he will get the blame for it. So Elizabeth can't get off the hook that way either. She wants Burley to act. Burley will act, but he'll only act if she gives her say-so. And that's the one thing she's desperate not to have to do. She is trapped by needing men to do it for her, none of whom can perform this task. But Mary is trapped too. She's literally trapped as a prisoner, but also she needs men to get her out. And the men who might get her out are also profoundly untrustworthy, not least because they see in Mary a vehicle of their own power or desire. Mortimer, the young firebrand, who is a nightmare in this play, I mean, properly a nightmare for everyone. He's not just a zealot and a convert, he's frankly a lunatic. He makes it completely clear in his passion for Mary that what he's trying to do is free her so, as he says, he can possess her, so he can have sex with her. He's a borderline rapist in this play. And she twigs very quickly in a terrifying moment that the man who has promised her salvation is also the man who threatens her destruction. And that terror is her most acute moment of terror in the play. The people who can save her are so unreliable because they're the kind of people who believe they can save her and by saving her, own her. The man who's probably at the centre of this play, certainly at the centre of the relationship between the two queens, is Dudley Lester, the Earl of Leicester, once one of Elizabeth's suitors, one of the men who she strung along, or did he string her along? Did they pretend to be in love with each other? But it was never going to happen. And now, older, embittered, 
used up in various ways by his constant courtship and service of this queen. He offers himself to the other queen. He thinks maybe Mary is the one who can give him what he wants, which is a queen of his own. He's also playing a double game. Mortimer's a kind of crazy zealot. Lester is weak. He's empty. He's duplicitous. He he does what both queens want. At the same time, he plays a double game with both of them. And he happens to be the person who engineers the central scene in the play, which is that the two queens do meet. Somehow he persuades or is persuaded by each of them that their meeting each other face to face is something that could deliver to each what they want. That is, he says to Elizabeth, you are so far above the other woman. You are so much her superior. She thinks if you meet, you will be meeting as equals. But the second that she sees you, she will know she's nothing compared to you. And he plays on her vanity. You are so much more beautiful than she is. She is nothing and you are everything. Why don't you meet her? And that will disabuse her in an instant of the idea that you and she are peers, that you can somehow be the person to judge her as her equal. And Mary persuades him, or he persuades Mary, that if they meet, Elizabeth will see that Mary is her equal. And Elizabeth will have to take Mary seriously, because they will meet as queen to queen. And somehow, Lester, who is by far the weakest character in the play, engineers this meeting by playing on their vanity and on his own vanity. It never happened. So this is a fiction. Elizabeth and Mary never did meet. But in this play, they do meet at the heart of the play, in the middle of the play. It's not a particularly long scene. It's pretty dramatic. And it's a catastrophe. It is a disastrous encounter. Both women approach it determined to be dignified, determined to show their queenly side, their regal side, to do what is expected, because there is a framework here. Queens should behave like queens. And very, very quickly, it descends into a slanging match. Mary is probably the more culpable here because she notices that Elizabeth is preening herself and is displaying the signs of queenly contempt, and it drives her mad. She can't bear that this woman is lording it over her. It's bad enough that she's her prisoner, but that she actually thinks she's a better person is unendurable. And so she starts insulting her. And the insults are pretty raw, and they're pretty basic. And though there's an elaborate language around them, Basically, what Mary says to Elizabeth is, you're no better than your mother. You are your mother's daughter, and we all know what she was. And Elizabeth says to Mary, and you're no better than you ought to be, and you're barely even that. We all know what you are. It's not particularly regal. And it is shot through with raw personal rage. It's not that they hate each other, but they cannot bear to have to encounter each other as though they were on the level. It's most obviously a disaster for Mary, and it looks like, and it's certainly set up in the play, like this is the thing that will unfreeze Elizabeth's dilemma, because finally meeting Mary and hearing Mary's contempt for her surely gives Elizabeth license now finally to break free from all of her anxiety and self-doubt, and resolve this issue once and for all. Mary has insulted her to her face. Mary has shown that she has no intention of trying to establish any kind of meaningful relationship so that Elizabeth could set her free. 
Mary has displayed her contempt for Elizabeth, so surely now Elizabeth must do what she's always going to have to do at some point, which is make a decision to end Mary's life. But she can't. Far from unfreezing the frozen dilemma or the frozen conflict between these two women, it refreezes it because Elizabeth is instantly aware that were she now to have Mary put to death, the word would get out that Mary had insulted her. And so Elizabeth would have been seen to do this in a fit of rage, of female vanity, of pique, of shrewishness, to use a Shakespearean word. It would be a catastrophe because of the woman-to-woman dynamic in a world where men not only make the rules, but set the expectations. She is, if anything, even more trapped by the fact that now it will be known. They have met face-to-face. The thing that does unfreeze the dilemma is a public event, not a private event. That is, these crazy men who are determined to liberate Mary and, and own her are hotheads and they act prematurely and the plot goes wrong. And that's the real disaster for Mary. Her liberators turn out to be fools. They get caught by the spymaster. The conspiracy is revealed. And now it's the double disaster. Mary has insulted Elizabeth to her face almost at exactly the same time that Mary has been exposed as part of a conspiracy, not just to liberate Mary, but to kill Elizabeth. She is a traitor confirmed, revealed for all the world to see. And so now all Elizabeth has to do is sign the death warrant that already exists because she's already been found guilty of treachery for a previous offence. And on top of this, when it's revealed the plot to the public, to the people, to Elizabeth's people, they clamour for Mary's death. There are protests, there are riots. How can this woman remain alive? Mary is the enemy of the state and the people of the state want her killed. So surely now Elizabeth has all the sanction that she needs. She has the plot, she has the evidence, and she has the overwhelming, not just popular support, but popular insistence that she puts an end to the life of the woman who is the biggest single threat to her continuing rule of England. And still she is paralyzed with indecision because now she feels she's trapped in a different way. Because now she feels after 18 years of not putting Mary to death. Were she to do it now, the word wouldn't be she did it because Mary insulted her. The word would be she did it finally because the people demanded it. And she says, Elizabeth, I quote, serving the people, this is a very queenly thing to say, serving the people, slavery, bondage. Now if she does it, she will be a slave to public opinion. She will be a slave to the demands of the people who are way beneath her. But the demand is overwhelming. So this is now the true nightmare. She has the reason to act. She has the imperative to act. She almost has the requirement to act. And she still can't bring herself to act. She signs the death warrant. The pressure is overwhelming. She can't resist the pressure. And having signed it, she refuses to release it. And she says... A sheet of paper does not decide yet. When it's said to her, right, you've signed it, can we now kill her? She says, yeah, I've signed it. But the decision only happens when I then allow you to use the paper to do its work, that is, to instruct the executioner to perform the deed. And the deed does happen. 
the play is set up, we all know how it's going to end. At some point, Mary must die because she does die. Elizabeth will, in the end, be responsible for that death. But as it builds towards that climax, Elizabeth squirms, trying to find ways not to be responsible for it. It finally happens because Burley effectively takes the paper off her and gets it to the people who will do what needs to be done when they see her signature on it. And Elizabeth claims or pretends to believe that she never gave the sanction for it. And she threatens the men who have acted in her name by saying, I never gave you permission to act in my name, even though I signed my name to the piece of paper. She is desperate. There is no way out for her. Her room for manoeuvre shrinks and shrinks and shrinks to the point where she has no choice. And yet she tries to insist right to the end that what was her choice wasn't her choice. And the play is designed to result in a stark, maybe overstylized, but also fantastically dramatic contrast between these two women, the woman who will be killed and the woman who signs her death warrant. And it's the woman who will be killed who is liberated. And it's the woman who signs the death warrant who feels trapped. Maybe Schiller overdoes it, but he portrays Mary towards the end as set free by the knowledge, the knowledge that's denied to the the man in the executioner's paradox, that she will die and the day on which she will die. She knows what's coming and she says to the people who come to her in tears, her servants, the men who still claim to worship her, don't cry for me, I'm fine now. I used to be trapped. I used to be enslaved by forces I couldn't control, but now I have regained control of my destiny because my destiny is with my church and with Christ, and I can go to my death a free woman. Death will free me. Elizabeth's curse is to stay alive. And Schiller gives Mary the contrivance of a priest who comes to take her confession. He's smuggled in and he takes a confession. And this play is partly, I don't know if the word is notorious, but certainly known for its strikingly sympathetic portrayal of the Catholic Queen by a writer, Schiller, more than two centuries later, who was a devout Protestant, who was brought up in a devoutly Protestant family, who wrote alongside his dramas, great Enlightenment histories, German Enlightenment histories, in which Catholicism is portrayed as a force of superstition and darkness, and Protestantism is the force of enlightened liberation. Protestantism will win, It's a, to use a later phrase, it's, it's a Whiggish story about overcoming Catholicism. And yet in this play, it's the Catholics who are given the best lines, and it's Catholicism itself that is portrayed in the richest most resonant language, not just at the moment or leading up to the moments of Mary's death. Earlier on, he gives Mortimer, the young convert, the would-be assassin, the firebrand, the lunatic, he gives him lines to describe why he converted to Catholicism, in which he says, Catholicism is the great religion of the senses. He goes to Rome and he's just blown away by the majesty of it, the beauty of it, the buildings the music, not just the elegance, but the overwhelming sensory overload of Catholicism. It blows him away. He can't resist it. It's so magnificent. Towards the end, Mary, 
in her final confession, embraces a kind of magnificent Catholicism. She is dignified. She speaks beautiful, resonant sentences. And she says, not only am I free, but I'm going to my death with my conscience clear. And the priest who confesses her says, are you sure your conscience is clear? And she says, it is clear. I have told you everything that I've done. I am indeed no better than I should be. And I have done many terrible things, but I'm not as bad as my reputation. She insists right to the end. He says at one point, are you sure you haven't left out those bits where you kind of murdered your husband and took that lover and had that other person killed? And she says, no, that is not on my conscience. I am better than I'm reputed to be. And I go to my death. I go to my God secure in that knowledge. And Schiller lets her get away with it. And yet I think as I read this play that actually they're still mirroring each other at the end. And what you have is the portrayal of two queens in completely different circumstances, totally different circumstances, who are both self-deceived. Self-deceived in part in their religion or in their understanding of their own religion. Elizabeth believes in a kind of self-sufficiency, a self-sufficiency in how she rules in her own person, the Virgin Queen, but also in her religion, in her ability to manage her own conscience without confession. And yet there she is at the end, her conscience is in tatters and she is trapped. She is indeed self-sufficient, but she's also friendless and alone. She is alone in her self-sufficiency. Mary is not alone. Mary doesn't just have the comfort of confession. She has the church, the Catholicism of the church in every sense of that word. It surrounds her. It embraces her. And yet I think what Schiller is saying is that her final acts are still performative. From Schiller's perspective, Catholicism is the performative religion. It is the religion of the senses. It is the show of magnificence. And Mary's final confession is a magnificent show. It's theatrical. And part of the genius of those final scenes is it is a theatrical representation, I mean, on stage, of a theatrical performance, the Queen's confession. And it's not fully plausible. It is too much of an act. She is too quick to say, I have nothing else to confess, because there is a self-consciousness to it. I am better than my reputation. And the priest says, yeah, but God is not interested in your reputation. God can see into your heart. You have to confess it all. There isn't a performance here to be made in the world, among men, among women. This isn't a performance. This is your confession. And she says, my conscience is clear. She is too performative at the end. Elizabeth is too set on self-sufficiency and neither of them, neither of them gets what they want. In one deeply ironic sense, Mary is the winner here. Not, I think, because of the magnificence of her death. Not because of the relative brokenness of Elizabeth. At one point in the play, Mary says, the only solution to this problem the problem, the frozen conflict between the two queens, is this realm, England and Scotland, has to be united under a single monarch. A lot of this is being driven by underlying political realities. We are talking about two nations on one island, two rival queens. At some point, this island will have to be united under a single monarch, to which 
Burley, the cynical spymaster, says, really? And you think that's going to be a Stuart? You think a Stuart can do that? As though the absurdity of Mary's position is revealed by the fact that she thinks it's her family that can be the unifiers. Elizabeth has no heir. The person who takes the throne of England and unites, in that sense, the thrones of Scotland and England is James VI and James I of Scotland. Mary's son and the Stuarts replace the Tudors as the ruling house of both. And then James is succeeded by Charles I, and then he disunites the kingdom because there's a civil war. But then Charles II comes back, and the Stuarts reign again. And then Charles has no heir, and so his brother, James II, disunites the country again. And so the cycle goes on, and so the wheel turns. But it's a Stuart story. If all of this was being done in order to keep the Stuarts off the throne, because the idea that this island could be united under a Stuart dynasty is so laughable to Elizabeth's spymaster, Mary wins. Though, of course, by the time that Schiller is writing, 1800, the Stuarts are history, and it's a Hanoverian Protestant Anglican dynasty that's in charge. History is going to tell its own story, and the two queens' rivalry will be overwhelmed by the dynamics of a history that neither of them can control. But certainly, the one who can't control it is Elizabeth. She has no heir. The other thing that I was left with anyway at the end of this play was a sense that the men have it so much easier than the two women. Yes, the two women are queens, and the men aren't kings. They are lords. They are the servants of these queens. But the men get to play their parts, get to act out their roles in ways that the women can only dream of. They get, in a sense, to be true to themselves because they make the rules, because they can decide what it is they want to be. Throughout this play, Elizabeth and Mary are unable to decide what it is they want to be, because anything they want to be also becomes its opposite. But the young firebrand who wants to be a martyr gets to be a martyr by sticking a knife in his own throat, the kind of thing that men do. The spymaster gets to be a realpolitik spymaster, and he uses an act of terrorism to finally put to death the woman he thinks is a threat to the state. He gets to be true to himself, which is to be a devious bastard. Even Lester, the weak, ineffectual, trying to play it both ways and ending up playing it neither way Lester, gets away with it. He gets to be an empty vessel right the way through to the end of the play. The play ends with Mary dead and Elizabeth broken. And in her brokenness, she calls out for help. She wants someone to come and befriend her. And her friend used to be this man, Lester. And she knows by this point that Lester has double-crossed her. She knows that these men are not to be trusted. She knows they've all been trying it on with both women, apart from the devious bastards like Burley. But still, the final thing that she does is she calls for Lester. She wants him to come to her. She needs the support that he can offer. And she's told that Lester has gone to France. The men have it easy. The two queens are trapped. They are much more trapped because it is a man's world. The rules, the conventions, the framework is male. 
even though the two most powerful characters are women. They are trapped, but they are also so much deeper as characters. These roles are so much richer than anything that the men have to offer. The men seem in this play, all of them, to be one-dimensional. The two-faced men are one-dimensional because their two faces, that's their one dimension. The two queens are multidimensional because everything they do can be its opposite. And even more than that, each of them is a version of the other. So for all the ways in which when they meet right at the heart of the play, not only can they not stand each other, but they can't resist calling out in the other everything that they hate. Throughout, there's a sense that the two women know that each could be the other, each could find themselves in the other's shoes. A lot of this is an accident of fate. They have ended up as opposites, but they've not ended up as opposites by choice. They've ended up as opposites simply because they didn't have a choice at the crucial moment. They were trapped by their roles. A few years ago in the West End, there was a celebrated production of Schiller's Mary Stuart, and the two lead roles were taken by the actors Juliet Stevenson and Leah Williams. And each night before the performance, they came on stage and they tossed a coin. It was theatrical. They did it in front of the audience so the audience could see what they were doing. It was a contrivance. And as a result of the coin toss, it was decided who would play which part. So it was random. Who would be Elizabeth? Who would be Mary? It was just the toss of a coin. And that seems right. Next week in this series, the fourth episode is going to be about one of the great Russian novels of the 19th century, but maybe not the one that you're expecting. I'm going to be talking about Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, and I'm going to be trying to explain why I've picked that one and not War and Peace. I'll also let you know a bit more about the series that's coming up next throughout March. I'm going to be talking to Gary Gerstel about the ideas behind, possibly even the ideas that decide, American elections from 1800 to 2024. We'll also be telling you how you can sign up for our newsletter. To find out more about this podcast, past, present and future episodes, just follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.